0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber, I'm the Director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. We're going to go old school today. Traditional music business, bands and managers, records and sync licensing, live concerts, remember them, and make or break deals with movers and shakers. Sumit Bothra has two feet firmly in what you might call the establishment but he's leaning further forward and seeing more than most in his position. Sumit's a manager. In fact, he's got over 20 years as a music manager under his belt. He's a director of ATC Management, he's on the board of the UK's Music Managers Forum, and he's the manager of Katie Melua, Fink, PJ Harvey, The Boxer Rebellion, Red Rum Club, and Nathan Nicholson. He's worked for Sony Music UK and Virgin Records America, he's toured the world with famous artists, and he's put music in Hollywood films. But he came up the hard way, or if not the hard way, at least his own way. But more than anything, perhaps, Sumit's a storyteller. There are other people who'll give you equally good tales of artists struggling and then a twist of fate or some sheer bloody-mindedness kicked open a few doors but Sumit's is the one you'll want to listen to. I caught up with him for a long overdue remote whiskey and a chat recently. This is Sumit Bothra. Enjoy. <laughs> Sumit Bothra, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today.
1: Absolutely my pleasure, man. Absolutely my pleasure.
0: should start by saying congratulations. New board member of the Music Managers Forum. That's uh, that's quite an honour.
1: Oh, it's such an honour. What a great bunch of people doing really essential work. And uh, yeah, I'm absolutely thrilled to have been asked and even more thrilled to have been uh, voted onto the board, actually. So uh, thank you, man. Thanks for saying that. It's a beautiful thing.
0: What What actually is it?
1: So it is a um, or it is an organization that um, represents the interests of artist managers in the UK uh, quite a few hundred um, of varying shapes and sizes across a vast variety of genres and a vast variety of experiences actually and it provides um, Quite a few functions to that collective of managers. You know, on the one hand, uh, from an outward facing point of view, uh, it is a central place where one can interact with the music management community, which of course is the gateway to the artist community for the most part in the UK. So, um, but it's also a uh, very robust space for education, it is a knowledge base. It is a vast pool of experience. It is a comfort blanket. It is a lobbying group. Um, ex- you know, well, why it's slightly di- difficult to answer the question is because it is a living, breathing, evolving uh, community of people. You know, you have to remember that artist managers and artists, of course, are constantly moving. It's restless. Uh, It's adaptable, you know, it is the um, uh, music industry equivalent of an amoeba. So, you know, and and in that sense, artist managers and the artists that we work with and partner with are unique in our industry because we don't uh, exist in one particular Petri dish. Hmm. Fascinating place to be and almost impossible to explain to most civilians.
0: Well, what's really interesting about it for me is it seems like a really collaborative coming together of people who, in other contexts, might be seen to be in competition with each other. I I mean, I don't think there's an equivalent of the Music Managers Forum in the States, for instance. You
1: know what's really interesting? Uh, About uh, 10 years ago, uh, when I joined the the people that, that Uh, that own the company that I work with now as a director of ATC management you know I was really taken aback It's the first time I kind of walked into an organization of managers and I was quite taken aback like truth be told by how little those managers communicated with each other it just wasn't the done thing at all you know there was just enough Food to go around. It was extreme. Managers, by their nature, they're competitive, competitive human beings. So, the idea to to uh, share information and knowledge and experience, even amongst your own, was was relatively alien. And that's only like a decade ago. You know, let alone uh, share information and resource and contacts, etc., with other managers who are competing for the same little inch of space that you're competing for. Man, forget it didn't happen because it just wasn't the nature of the beast and and look that's okay you know but i think there came a point where the amount of information becomes so overwhelming that actually to to not collaborate and share uh would be at your detriment and as survivors you realize very quickly what is to your detriment and what is not and so Um, I think it kind of starts starts to happen in stages. You know, you start communicating with people firstly within your own organization. Uh, Then you start having a deeper dialogue within your own little silo within that organization. And, you know, you, you start to uh, erode uh, historic hierarchical structures, you know, between the manager, the day-to-day, the assistant, the this, the that, the that, and everyone starts to get to a level because knowledge is power and knowledge is everywhere. So to, subscribe to this hierarchical principle in your normal working life all of a sudden doesn't hold water because you require knowledge. And then that morphs again into managers understanding that there is a need to come together as one unit because you're working within an environment that is evolving legally, financially, commercially, artistically. And, and I don't know why it's happened in the UK. I don't know, the UK is a very special place musically, obviously, it's almost like the center of the musical universe in a way. But Maybe just because of geography, maybe because of history, I don't know, but it just kind of is. So it kind of makes sense for the industry in the UK to be uh, leading the charge in that sense. But now you have like the MMF in the UK, which is this massive collection of managers of all shapes and sizes, which not only is sharing that, it, that valuable information and, and working together as one and affecting massive change in the industry on behalf of the artists and of course our audiences, but also having this huge impact on future generations of managers and the artists they represent um to i suppose share with them the value of collaborative process and uh and and yes that that makes it a very unique space but um uh you know i think my my own learning you know the 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 amount of um i don't know ram that I've had to use in my in my brain over just the last few weeks you know in this particular environment has uh, grown exponentially as a result it's phenomenal
0: yeah i guess you probably had to be fairly adaptable recently
1: yeah i mean I, i've always been adaptable always for as long as i can remember i never really you know could could fit into a shoebox you know what i mean i was never that guy but i have had to alter my working practices and alter my thinking in as much as doing an awful lot more of it. So for me, it's not really about adapting my behavior. It's about altering my capacity.
0: I've got to say when we first moved to Sweden nearly six years ago, one of the first things we did was to get three kittens. there's a reason I'm telling you this two girls, one boy, Polly, Jean and Harvey. And so when I say that, like, I'm a fan, uh, of PJ Harvey, you, I want to put that into context, and, and you are PJ Harvey's manager, right? But also some other really cool people Fink, Katie Mellower, Nathan Nicholson, Boxer Rebellion. Now, it kind of makes me think, I, I don't know if I would be a good manager. Do you have to be a fan to be a manager, or does that get in the way of being a manager?
1: That's such a great question. <laughs> you have three cats called Pauline and Harvey, firstly. That's hilarious and awesome, and I will let her know that, and I'm sure she will get an absolute kick out of it, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, do you have to be a fan of the artists that you work with to be a great manager to those artists? Uh, no, no, you don't. You don't. Does it help? On, on one hand, it can help. On the other hand, it can hinder. Okay, let me explain what I mean, right? For, well, firstly, you know, the first artist I started to work with uh, so take Fink, for example, you know, Fink, Fink and I built Fink's career. So there, there was no Fink fan.
0: Right, right. I'm with you.
1: There was no Fink fan. We like learned how to do it together. He learned to sing songs. I learned to put him in a room. He learned to play in front of pe- one or two people. I learned to do this. I, we, he learned to do that. I mean, it was so symbiotic that actually... It had nothing to do with fandom. He was just my my very, very dear friend who I lived with, and we decided to go down this little journey together and see what would happen. I, I, of course, I loved hearing him sing, and I loved seeing him play guitar, but more importantly, I loved watching him overcome his fear and be part of that. And then I loved seeing him revel in what that would bring and feel so proud and privileged to have been a part of that, right? L- like like you would with a child,
0: right?
1: in a way, in a way. And, and of course, then you, you become a fan. I, I The word fan is a bit of a weird word. You know, you become an admirer of the talents of that person. And you feel, if you are built like I am, duty-bound to enhance and celebrate the talent of that human being. And of course, if your relationship is as close as it is with with Finn and I, as it is with everyone I work with, quite honestly, whether it's Polly or Katie or Finn or Nathan, et cetera, that relationship becomes symbiotic. And so they then start to take just as much pride in your professional development and your talents as you do in theirs. So it's not like you become fans of each other, you just start to admire and respect each other. And, and not only that, when you then start to feel the impact that your work has on the world that you live in, at any level, whether it's five people in a room, 10 people in a room, 10,000 people at a festival stage, or 50,000 people, 100,000 people, and on and on it goes, and then you get into streaming, you're talking about tens of millions of people, Right you kind of realize that, wow, well, together we have this this power to be able to impact the world in a way that, you know, of course you hope makes it better. Now, conversely, if I was like a super fan of an artist who then came to me and said, oh, I really want you to manage me. Okay, now there's a part of me that in that process would feel like I would need to let go of that type of, Fandom, admiration, you know, inspiration, whatever, however you want to deem it, okay? Because to be in that particular relationship with that human being, I cannot actually do what I'm being asked to do. I'm kind of rooted in a particular space in their creative being. And so the manager in me is like, you must evolve. You have to evolve. You need to challenge yourself. You need to challenge your audience. You need to never bore yourself. Don't repeat yourself. You've done that. Do something else. Like That's what keeps the world alive. And we continue to innovate because as artists, it's, there's a difference okay, between being an, a, a straight artist and an entertainer. I work with artists who entertain. I don't work with just straight-up entertainers who don't have a responsibility to innovate as an artist might. If it's not difficult, it's not worth it. So if I were a fan of an artist and I started managing that artist and that artist was like happy for us to be in that place, then quite honestly, I think I would stifle the progress of that artist Um, because I would continue to want that artist to return to what I as a fan wanted to hear. Yeah. But as a fan, I don't really like what you're doing now. I like what you just did. So give me more of what you just did. And now am I, am I actually adding value? I'm not so sure. Could they do that without me? Yeah, of course they could. Sure. They have already done it without me. So why the fuck am I here?
0: So, I mean, to ask the stupid question, what does a manager actually do?
1: You know what? If you wanted a a, a qualified answer to that question and a considered answer to that question, I would suggest you do a part two of this podcast and you interview the artists that I manage and ask them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I would be very happy to do that.
1: You know, you ask them, "What does Sumit actually do?" It's like it's like asking a kid, like, "Hey, what does a parent do?" <laughs> they just they just complicate and ruin my life. That's what a parent does.
0: Right. but I love them. <laughs> so, is there? I mean, the way you did it, starting with somebody who was at like at point zero, and going on that whole journey with them. Is that a recommended way to to go about becoming a manager? Or did you do it the hard way?
1: There's no easy or hard. like, Like, you know, it's like, is there an easy or hard way of living life? There's just life. Right. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. for me, I I never, I didn't set out to be a manager. I didn't even set out to work in the record business, man. I studied, uh, you know, I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I did a dual degree program. I was a very bright kid. And I wanted to be, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a robotics engineer. I wanted to go to MIT or Carnegie Mellon and, and study and build robots. And so in my teens, I would, you know, I would break things to understand how shit worked. Like that's, that's what I love, That and and writing and use of words. You know, I always loved those things. So, and both my parents are doctors, which I, I knew I didn't want to become a doctor because all they did was study all the time. And I was like, dude, that that sucks. You know, and
0: almost no robots at all. And <laughs> almost no
1: robots. They were very analog. My parents, my mom, consultant psychiatrist, my dad, neurosurgeon. Like they are old school practitioners of the trade. You know. So anyway that definitely wasn't for me in not that it was out of my uh, out of bounds for me intellectually just you know spiritually wasn't for me so i ended up going to the university of pennsylvania i got into the wharton business school i studied finance and strategic management entrepreneurial management i also did another degree on the side in at the school of engineering which was in strategic engineering and systems engineering sorry and logic and math and I ended up, I was throwing a lot of parties and I ended up working in the record business stuff, but totally randomly, but I, but I always loved music. And the funny thing is, I didn't realize until recently when I went back to India, I, went to, I was in India for a wedding last November and I saw a cousin of mine uh, who, and, and I hadn't seen her in years. Years like I think the last time I saw her, she was like six years old. You know, like a little kid, six, seven, eight, whatever. And then, and then this time I saw her, and of course she's a grown up. Met her, and we were having this conversation. And she was like, "Oh my god, dude, it's so amazing to see you." And I was like, "Yeah, dude." She's like, "You're so you're working in music." I'm like, "Yeah." And she goes, "When I first met you, all you did was play me cassette tapes of music I'd never heard." I'm like, "Really?" Yeah. You played me Tracy Chapman. You played me like, dude, the the the, the cast of characters was hilarious because I don't remember this stuff at all. She's like, I was like, who did I play? She's like, you played me Tracy Chapman, Richard Marx, Def Leppard, Ozzy Osbourne, Boys to Men, like this random like mix of people, right? Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, no way. She goes, yeah, you were just music, 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 music. So I suppose on some level, it was always in me. And then when I started working in the record business, and then I started managing, I guess, uh, I kind of fell into it. And you, the thing in, in management, as with a lot of careers in entertainment, no one tells you, okay, management may be separate to like working in the record business where you have titles, right? So you you started in the mailroom, you become an AR scout, or you become a publicist, then you're a Guy in promotions, then you're director of promotions, then you're head of the label. Like you have titles that tell you that you are qualified to do that job. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. You don't get a fucking degree in being the MD of uh, Sony Music. You just get told, you know, you're not the MD. And you're like, okay, that's my degree. That's my title. In management, there's that's no such thing, right? So you get to this point, and I remember very Specifically, when it happened to me, where at some point in your little evolution, trying to figure this out, where you're just kind of hustling and you're just enjoying what you're doing and you're able to make enough money to keep the lights on, and you're you're you you can see that you're impacting the world around you in some weird uh, way. At some point, you realize that you are a bona fide professional, and at that point. To go back to your question, do you have did you have the easy way or the hard way? The point that you realize you are a bona fide professional manager, it becomes absolutely irrelevant how you got there. All that matters is that you got there, and then you meet other bona fide managers because now you're like a bona fide manager, you know, like oh yeah, I'm a bona fide manager. I got a little roster. I got this. I got that. I'm meeting other managers. And and particularly when you meet like real managers, you know, like real, like serious cats who've like, you know, they they realize who they look after and like, oh, my God, these guys are the cats. Then, honestly, it doesn't matter. You're just like blessed. You're just blessed to be called a manager, like legit artist manager. And that's just what you do. And you just happen to be really good at it. And you just hope that you continue to be really good at it, man.
0: I guess part of that would be who trusts you to be their manager uh, must, must play a big role in that.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, Dude, look, trust in this game, trust and honor actually Mm. uh, and dependability are so crucial like you can be a manager who might not be the most entrepreneurial spark in the box but you're dependable get a job done your spreadsheets are correct shit checks out you know what i mean you work above board your deals are good solid you your team player your bread and butter kind of reliable cat you can be just as brilliant a manager being that guy as you can be being that trailblazing, crazy, off the wall, entrepreneurial, I don't know how Microsoft Excel works, but I'm making it rain, that kind of cat. Sure. And, and both can coexist in exactly the same space and both will respect the endeavor of each other. And that's, it's utterly unique. And, and, and in the world of music management, artist management, Honestly man, it's it's nothing like when someone says to me, "Oh, like what do you do? Is it like like a film agent or like a theater agent or like a casting director or like a literary agent?" And not at all. They have a agent client relationship. And that's just the nature of the beast and and one does a job for the other. But as an artist manager, I I have not once seen that rule apply in my field of work because you are so symbiotically connected to the person that you work with and alongside that you tend to know more about their lives sometimes than even they do i can't point to another profession like it i really can't
0: it's it's interesting because all of the best stories about music managers and so i guess the public perception of music managers is that not all Music managers are this kind of trustworthy, dependable kind of character that you're talking about. Is that common? Is it a thing of the past? Because you hear stories about artists just being absolutely ripped off, and it's the managers that, that, that are, you know are the main characters in those stories.
1: <laughs> Look, sensationalism, it's everywhere, every nook and cranny of everything. So I could say to you, all right, and I have this argument with other people who think that all artists are drug addicts and alcoholics. And that's why, if you say that you work in music and you try and take an insurance policy out, you know what? You're going to get charged four times more than everyone else. And they're not. In my experience, in fact, every artist I work with is teetotal, to be honest, almost, almost, almost completely teetotal, right? Bar, bar one, who I occasionally have a beer with. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely not a drug addict and extremely serious and professional about their work. Sure. Record labels. Record labels, they rip off their artists. They're the devil. Universal, Warner, Sony, the major labels. Oh, that's all we hear about is how much they've like just ripped off all of their artists forever. Not true, man. Not true. Yeah, okay. There have been some pretty poor deals that have happened in the past. That shit needs to be fixed 100%. But, you know, the stories that rise to the top are the ones that are sensational, the ones that are fantastical, the ones that are like, oh, my God, did you hear this? Did you hear that?
0: And I guess you doing your job well is not something that somebody would make a movie about, whereas somebody doing their job particularly, you know, badly uh, and ripping off artists is there's a plot there.
1: Well, if they only if they're maybe successful, <laughs> uh, I I learned uh, one of the things that I was told very early on uh, by one of my clients, actually, was uh, that man, management, you know what? It's a thankless task. Let me, uh, Finn, think. He's going to hate me for saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. He's my best mate. OK, one of my best mate. He's my best mate. He was my roommate when I moved to London. We roomed together. Didn't really know each other. I was a totally alien kind of guy to him. Just come out of the University of America. He's like born and bred in Cornwall. You know, grew up in Bristol. Super cool guy. DJ on Ninja Tune. Blah, 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 blah. And I'd like popped out of a fraternity in Philadelphia. And very smart guy. And bounced into England. And all of a sudden I'm living with this guy. Okay? Who I still manage to this day. 15 plus 20. Almost 20 years later. Right. Yeah. And... We became friends and we're very, very different types of human being. I must have literally been an alien to him. We put out a record, we signed, we signed it to Ninja, da, da 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 And we get to this one record and he writes a song and he delivers a song in this big, big collection of songs that he's like, okay, these are the songs for the album. And hey, have a listen to them before we send them to the label, et cetera, before we master everything. And we uh, listen to everything and I call him up and he's like, okay, so what's going on the album? That was the conversation. So he rolls through his list of tracks and he's missing this one song, which I thought was the song on the records, this track called Looking Too Closely. And I'm like, oh yeah, he's like, give me your list. And I'm like, okay, here's my list. So it's not too dissimilar to yours, but I've also added Looking Too Closely and I've taken off this other track from your list, but that song has to be on this record. Nah, 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 no way, man. I'm like, what do you mean, no way? It's..." Fucking fantastic. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. It's not going on the record. It's too commercial. It's too this. It's too that. I'm not happy with it. Blah, 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 blah. Dude, this became the biggest argument I had ever had with one of my closest friends, a brother to me, a brother to me, right? And we fought like cats and dogs. And he got really upset with me, really upset. And, and I got to the point where I'm like, we have put, we have worked so hard to get here, you and I. We have worked so hard for so many years and we duked it out. We banded it out and then here we are. And you've delivered the song, which I think can literally single-handedly change the course of your life and improve the lives of millions of people. And you're telling me it's not going on the record. Actually, dude, you know what? Fuck you. I feel so strongly about it that if you don't put it on the record, I quit. I will still love you, but honestly, I'm out because this is bullshit. And it was massive fight. I was in the office at the time, I was at ATC. Everyone around me is looking at me. I'm not the kind of guy that's screamed down a phone, but I'm screaming at the phone. I was so angry, I was so upset. He eventually got to, he's on this, this, uh, anyway, he's on a record called Hard Believer and he's like got to a point where he's just like, dude, you know what, man, man, fine. Fuck you, fine. Put on the record, it's not my first single. I don't care if it's not your first single. It'll be a second single, whatever, but it's going on the fucking record. Anyway, I got my way and, and I really had to impress upon him that this wasn't just his career. This was our career. We had built this house together, man. It's like being, it's the weirdest relationship. It's more than being married. And he agreed, okay, we'll put it on. Dude, we put that record on his album. To this day, it's the biggest track in his entire canon of works, which is full of beautiful songs, amazing songs, world changing songs. But this one song cut through and changed everything, changed everything, changed his career, elevated every tour we did, every show we did. Uh, his fan base went from X tens of thousands to X hundreds of thousands to X millions of people. One track, which, yes, he wrote, yes, he and his boys recorded. And yes, he was going to fucking kill. You know what I mean? And I don't take credit because it takes two to tango. He, He takes credit for letting me in and agreeing with me to make the decision to let that song come out. Against his better judgment, to be fair, and I totally respect that, but nevertheless, it did. And it changed everything. And that's a micro example, man, a micro example. Back to your point of, Well, the reputation of managers is that they can, they swindle their artists, that they basically, they do more harm than they do good. If you choose to sit with me and look for the countless examples of where managers have altered the course of history positively by helping to make the right decision and never taking a single ounce of fucking credit, it will completely obliterate that reputational stereotype. I could wipe the floor with it.
0: Here's something else that you probably don't get a lot of credit for, but it, it's probably worth mentioning, I think. Tell me about pen masala.
1: <laughs> wow, man. Pen masala. It, Yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you want to know tell me the story all right so pen masala is a is a, actually an all-male hindi acapella group uh when i was at call at the university of pennsylvania my freshman year so this is 1995 i i loved singing i always loved singing and i'd been in choirs in high school and all that kind of stuff so i thought it would be great to join an a cappella group and in america you know a cappella groups are a big deal it's like this amazing community of peeps and some are all male some are co-ed some are all female some are like you know um suit and tie kind of affairs some are kind of you know what i mean like it's just this whole thing and at the university of pennsylvania it's a particularly vibrant a cappella community and at the time i had I think in high school, I just started to learn about R and B and singing. And I just started to have this real, I grew up listening to like metal records. Like that was my thing is this I listened to a lot of, but not even metal, just soft metal, whatever. Iron Maiden and Ozzy Osbourne. I don't know if you've gotten Black Sabbath. I don't know if you call that metal or not. That's but... metal. Is it metal? That's totally metal. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: of course it is. <laughs> maybe. That's, that's classic metal.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Okay. Com- okay. Classic metal, maybe compared to Lamb of God, not so much, but yes, sure. Sure. So I grew up at, in Saudi Arabia when I lived in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia at the at the record shop called 777 and the only music you could get that was English speaking, ironically in the world music section <laughs> in Saudi Arabia, was the English speaking stuff. And there were like four or five cassettes, all pirated, and they're all metal bands. So I just bought like Iron Maiden and Ozzy and Sabbath and blah, blah, blah. And so I kind of grew up listening to these records. Loved them. And as I got older and my voice broke and I started to have a little bit of a voice and I used to love singing, I started getting into singing and R&B and that kind of vibe. When I got to the University of Pennsylvania and I started seeing all these acapella groups and dude, the, these cats were the rock stars. They were, they literally, they were the coolest cats. They had such skill. Like I'd see an acapella performance and it just blow my mind. I'm like, God, that's so dope. These guys are amazing. I auditioned. I'm like, I'm gonna audition, and I kind of got a sense of who the like the cool cats were, and there were like three or four acapella groups that were just straight up, just cool, these are cool cats. So I started audition for them, and I didn't get into any of them. rejected, 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 rejected. And then I thought, well, I'm just going to start my own, actually. And as a kid, as a kid, I'm in an Indian family. And as a kid, I used to sing Hindi songs at dinner parties. What you used to do, the kids would sing Hindi songs or do like stand up or whatever. And so I and and, and, me, and my sister and I, we used to sing Hindi songs. So I was like, well, I'm going to set up my own acapella group. and. We're going to sing Hindi songs, Hindi classics. And there's a lot of Indian cats at school, but also it was just like unique and interesting. And plus it meant I could be in an acapella group, quite frankly. So I was sitting in my physics class and the guy sat next to me. I didn't know anyone, by the way, at this university. I was just a random guy. And I sat next to this Indian guy and said, like, hey, do you sing? And this guy, his name was Ankur. And he's like, yeah, I mean, kind of. All right, great. I'm going to like make an acapella group. We're going to sing Hindi songs can you sing any Hindi songs? He's like, yeah, can you? I'm like, I can actually. I know I don't sound it, but I can. I can sing Hindi song. I love Hindi songs. Like, okay, great. Uh, do you know any friends that can sing Hindi songs? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, like a couple of the guys that I met, they're from Delhi and Mumbai or whatever, they can sing Hindi songs. Okay, great. Meet me in my dorm. So I got this random crew of brown guys together, and we had our first ever rehearsal in my dorm room. It's awful. And I think I have a, a, an audio recording of it somewhere. But uh, the idea was a bunch of dudes singing Bollywood songs acapella. No one had ever done this before. And so we started doing this. And then, and then there was this only other brown guy in another acapella group called Pen6, which was the acapella group. They were like the fawns of acapella groups. So I go and meet this guy, Ananda Sen, who's a Bengali guy, great guy. He's like, hey, I remember you, man. Like, uh, you got rejected. <laughs> yes, I did. I got rejected. But I've kind of bought this, like, little uh, crew of random Indian guys together, brown guys anyway, and we're going to start singing Hindi songs a cappella. But I don't know anything about music. I can sing a song, but I don't know about notes or any of that shit. So I need, like, an MD. But you know all about that stuff. Can you come and meet these guys? and maybe help us because no one can actually sing and uh, I really need some help. Yeah. All right, cool. So he comes over and he's a bit of a rock star. I am like, Hey, look, I've got an understand here from Penn six. And I was like, wow, amazing. So we train up and we become an all singing Hindi a cappella group. It still exists to this day. In fact, now Penn Masala is actually a huge part of the university of Pennsylvania's cultural fabric. They've, uh sung at the White House. They sang in front of Obama. They're they're in the pitch perfect film. Like this is a this is now a known known, right? It's a very famous a cappella group. So I built this thing, and then a really a, quite a difficult thing happened for me in Penn Masala, which is why, when you ask me, it's a bit of a it's a little bit of an open wound, actually, for me. And actually, it has also informed a lot of my life because. What ended up happening a little bit into the process, one of the guys in the acapella group's like, There's a guy I know, and he wants to join Pen Masala. So, can we bring him into Pen Masala? Like, I don't know, I guess. Like, we didn't have any major rules. So, this guy comes over and he starts singing. He's okay. He's not really a singer, but he's kind of yeah, okay. He can be in. And then he says, I've spoken to my friend who lives in my dorm, who works for the university newspaper, The Daily Pennsylvanian. She's a writer. And I've spoken to her about doing an article on pen masala to put us in the university newspaper. And now we're all like, dude, that's fucking amazing. Because we're now going to exist, right? We're like literally going to be in the paper. This is like big shit. This is pre-internet. So it's like the newspaper is everything. He says, yeah. So anyway, I've had a conversation with her. And it's like, it's, it's on. So next. Monday, Tuesday, keep your eyes peeled. But we're going to fucking exist, baby. I'm like, man, that's so amazing. The newspaper comes out and I get the newspaper. And I'm so proud right at this point. I'm really proud because i bought these random, rabble fucking random crew together of cats. And I open the paper and it's front page, front page, because it's the birth of a new acapella group at the University of Pennsylvania. Dude, this is a big deal. This doesn't happen. No one makes a new a cappella group. And it basically says something along the lines of University of Pennsylvania freshman founds and creates brand new all-male Hindi a cappella group with other founding members, Sumit Bhatra, this person, that person, da 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 And I'm like, dude, What? Are you kidding me? So I was, I was, you know what, man? I was actually really upset because I put so much spirit and energy into birthing this thing out of nothing, literally talking to people in my class and bringing the ingredients together, birth this brand new thing. And, and actually it was stolen from me in that very moment. It was stolen from me. Uh, about a year later, so by this point we're like now doing like big uh, Indian mela shows. We're doing this. We're like going to New Jersey. We're playing at other people's colleges. Like we're now a known known. Okay, a year later, and we became really good, really good, really interesting. And I was basically you know the the beat boxer and one of the soloists and blah blah blah. And it was a, it was actually an amazing, beautiful cre- uh, thing that, to create something out of thin air like that. And Uh, About a year in or so, uh, I tried to get everyone together to rehearse for a show. It was like a really big opportunity. And by this point, I'm like managing Pen Masala, right? It was a support slot for Apache Indian. Wow. Who was doing a show in Philadelphia. Amazing. Which at the time was like, oh my God, Apache Indians coming to Philadelphia. And the promoter of this club called us and said we've got Apache India coming from England. This is a really big deal and we need to support and you guys are dope and you're gonna support Apache India. I'm like, amazing. <laughs> like, I mean, okay, super wacky, but great, dude, why not? So I'm like, guys, you know, send this, send this note out to everyone. We've we gotta to get together, we gotta to rehearse, we gotta to bring together and no one gave a shit. And no one shows up for the rehearsal. Like no one gives a shit. Like, yeah, yeah, whatever, we'll be fine. So I'm like, you know what? I quit. This apathy, this lack of professionalism, this this is total bullshit. And it's been stolen from me anyway. (laughs) Like whatever, man. I'm out now. I'm very proud of it. Obviously, I am very proud of it. I know in my heart of hearts. I know, and all the people that were with me at the beginning know that you know we created it. We created it together. But okay, it was it was my brainchild. I think on the Pen Masala's Wikipedia, bizarrely. I think I joined in Wikipedia, I think I joined four years after, which is really hilarious. And I, and I, I guess I've never really uh, fixed the history. I, I probably should. I probably should write to the university and fix it and correct it, you know, I probably should. But I have that newspaper article upstairs somewhere. I found it recently when I cleaned up my garage. Um, what you say is profound by asking me that question. I'm very proud of it, but it has definitely instilled something in me that I have taken with me throughout my professional career, which I not only apply to myself, but I apply to every single human being that enters my professional ecosystem, which is credit where credit's due. And every single person that contributes to what we do and the art that we make and the song that we sing and the stage that we put it on, every single person that is part and parcel of that expression of humanity is 100% credited and respected for what they bring to the table. And I will never have it any other way. That is their input and that is their legacy and it needs to be recognized that historically, it's that important to me. And I suppose that whole thing that happened with pen masala (laughs) much many, many years later in my life, ultimately had a very profound effect with the way I operate as a manager. To not be ashamed, to take credit for the work that you do, which is not about stroking your ego, it's about recognising your impact on history. And why shouldn't you?
0: Sure. Yeah, of course. Okay, so here's a story I'm hoping only has positive associations for you. Best film ever, Going the Distance, Drew Barrymore. Tell me about that.
1: <laughs> Going the Distance was so fascinating. So I'm managing the Boxer Rebellion, right? Right. Bunch of random cats, great guys, making great music, but essentially lost at sea, these dudes. Lost at sea. They're signed by Alan McGee. Big deal, creation records, all that shit. Everyone can Google Alan McGee and look him up, right? So this band gets signed by Alan McGee. Alan McGee's new label, Tones, Implodes, and they all get dropped. It's really important to understand, just as a sidebar, the impact that has on the psyche of a human being. You just imagine, you're 19, 20 years old. You play the bass, or you play the drums, or you play guitar, or you sing a song, and you're that kid in your family, that kid. And that kid, one day, tells everyone in their ecosystem, I've just been signed to a record deal in London by the same guy that signed Oasis, And I'm signed to his label, Pop Tones, which is part of Mercury, which is part of Universal, the biggest record company in the world. And me and my my little rabble-rousing three other cats as this band are signed to this record. Like, dude, that is a big deal. And so every birthday you go to, every wedding you go to, every family gathering you go to, every funeral you go to, you are the man. You're like winning for everyone, right? You're that guy. So these guys, individually, each of them went through being that guy. And they were that guy for a couple of years. And they made their debut album called Exits, which is an amazing album, Lost Classic. And Pop Tones released the album. And right after releasing the album, the whole label, for whatever reason, imploded. This is before my time looking after them, okay? Implodes and uh, it's game over. Now, these guys are going back to those weddings, those funerals, those family gatherings, and they're not that guy anymore. They're a failed hero. Like, this is a disaster. So, okay, here's an interesting story. When I met the guys, I am asking them, tell me about some of your highs. So they told me about some of their highs. Tell me about some of your lows. So Nathan Nicholson, who I still manage to this day and the Boxer Rebellion, I still manage to this day, says to me, you know, one of my lows was when Adam and I, the bass player, we ended up after we got dropped going back to work in office in the shoe shop because that's where they worked before. All right, cool. So what's up? I remember getting some shoes for some guy. He wanted some brogues in a size nine. So I went and got the brogues in a size nine and I'm kneeling down and I'm fitting these brogues on this guy's feet. And I'm looking up at him and I'm like, is these fit okay, sir? And the guy's like, uh, do I know you? No, no, I don't think you know me, uh, but uh, how do these shoes fit okay? no 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 i like i know you I, I recognize your voice i totally know you are you are you the lead singer of the boxer rebellion yeah yeah i i am yeah i am uh the lead singer of the boxer Rebellion. we and his girlfriend's like oh <gasps> we just saw you on the weekend at, at your show at dingwalls we're like huge fans oh I, that did hey that's really cool man that's great uh Cool. So, how are the shoes? (laughs) So Todd, guitarist is like, yeah, I remember walking down Camden after all that shit had happened. And I'm walking down the street in Camden High Street and some guy shouts, shouts over the street. Hey, weren't you in the Boxer Rebellion? Still am, bro, still am. (laughs) I was like, fuck me. This is real shit, right? This is real shit, dude. This is what goes down. So anyway, we start working together and I'm like, forget the dog and pony show bullshit. We're not going to go talk to A&R people, sign to a label, blah blah blah, whatever, man. You guys are great. Let's find some fans. Let's put it out guerrilla style. We got nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose at that point. I had been had a a total meltdown with an artist that I'd worked with prior. So I had nothing. I was broke, totally broke, borrowing money off my parents. The guys were just totally, this is a total mess. And we were just like, we're just going to fight for everything. And we can feel fine about it because the music is awesome. So anyway, I had spent a lot of time in and out of LA with prior clients, meeting music supervisors and stuff. So going back to going the distance and, my friend, Aaron Scully, who at the time, and actually still is the head of music for New Line Cinema. So Aaron calls me one day and says, there's a script that's just been greenlit at New Line called Going the Distance. I'm like, okay, shitty title, but what's the vibe? Anyway, it's about this couple and the guy works in a record company and he uh, finds a band and blah, 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 blah. But it's basically, It's a Drew Barrymore film and we need a closing credits song. So maybe I thought this could be great for the Boxer Rebellion because you're looking for some shit and maybe you could like talk to him about a closing credits song. Dude, Aaron, I fucking love you. You're the best. It's a Drew Barrymore film. This is going to literally change our lives. No question. Send me a brief. It's on. In fact, in fact, I'm going to get to the studio now, and you're going to get on a phone call with the guys, one-on-one, mano-a-mano, and tell them what you need. And tomorrow, you're going to have a song in your inbox. She's like, dude, you are a legend of the game. Sweet. Done. So I run over. Meanwhile, by the way, by this point, the Boxer Rebellion are on iTunes front page. They're the first ever band to get a global single of the week. They're, they are a known to known, but they're still totally broke. Anyway, so I run it over to the rehearsal room, guys, guys, guys. My friend Erin, she's got this movie. She's amazing. It's Drew Barrymore. They need an end credit song. I gotta get you on the phone with her. She's gonna tell you what she needs. We gotta turn it around. It's gonna be dope, blah, blah, blah. So they have a chat with Erin. She's like, it's so good to meet you. Here's the brief. Here's what we need. It's kind of close. We're closing the circle romantically, but we're not closing the circle romantically. It's like we're we're all we're all in love, but we're not in love. It's like basically a big fat romantical gray area so can you deliver a song that feels like that they're like yeah great so they do so they deliver two songs and they're both awesome and Aaron calls me two days later and says dude I've sent this to the director and the music team and the screenwriter blah blah and they're kind of liking the vibe and I'm like hey Aaron dude uh can you send me the script because I I realize at this point I've been so caught up in this whole rigmarole I have no idea whether this film sucks or not. Yeah. So, so now that I know we could potentially get the song, I'm like, oh, hold on a minute. If the film sucks, I might not actually want to give you the song, right? Mm-hmm. So send me the script. Of course, so that night I get the script and I read the script and I'm like, oh wow, this is, okay, this is interesting. It's like this guy, Justin Long plays the guy in the end and he works at this record company and he's totally debased by the culture of this label because he he really champions this band that no one's ever heard of and no one gives a shit. And, um, and he falls in love with this woman, Drew Barrymore, over the sounds of this band that no one hears and blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like, well, Aaron, I have an idea. Rather than this band be this faceless band, where he just like opens a drawer and there's some CD and no one knows what the fucking band are. Why don't we make the boxer rebellion be the band and then it's like art imitating life, because this is exactly what's happening right now in their lives. They're they're total outcasts. We're not signing to anyone, but yet people who love music are are are, are enamored by these guys, and this is a and it's beautiful thing. So when he opens that drawer, and you see the CD rather than it be just some CDR with no f- name on it, why don't we make it the Boxer Rebellion's Union album, which we have independently released? She's like, dude, that's a really interesting idea. I'm like, yeah, because look, then your whole film is super current. Like you're now cool as shit, right? Like you're, you're, you're so on top of your game. You don't even know how on top of your game you are. But if you open that drawer and it's not just some CDR with like a Sharpie scribbled on it, but it's the Boxer Rebellion's Union album, dude, honestly, you are cooler than cool. So she's like, man, I'm going to take this to the team. She calls me a few days later and says, Sue, it. can you get on a call with me and the legal team at New Line and the script writers? Because they've listened to the boxers. And Justin Long, who's playing our lead, turns out he's a fan of the band because he discovered them on iTunes. So he's freaking out about this idea. This is amazing. Dude, of course, get me on a conference call. Let's do this. This was around about the time where I became a bona fide manager, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, absolutely. Let me Let me schedule it with my assistant. <laughs> So anyway, I get on this call, and there's a whole bunch of people on this call. Like, hey, Suman, it's really good to meet you. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we're, we've been listening to the Boxer Rebellion and uh, the Union album. It's a great record. Uh, but uh, you know, like, uh, what do how, how do we? How do we make this work? And I'm like, look, I have a really clear idea. Basically, your whole, your faceless band, we're gonna personalize, we're gonna humanize that band, and we're gonna make them the Boxer Rebellion. So not only are you gonna have the CD in the drawer, we're gonna to go to a show, we're gonna have them perform, I'll make them available. They're very busy guys, but don't worry, I'll talk to them, we'll make it work. Uh, I need visas, we're gonna get them on a plane, we're gonna get them over, we're gonna shoot the thing and the Boxer Rebellion are gonna be in your movie and I will make that happen for you. And they're like, holy shit. The next best thing would be Radiohead. It's that big a deal get me on a separate call with the script writers and let's let's find a way to quickly write this band into the script of your movie okay no problem done and i start writing the band into the script of this film so now when it's like faceless band it's all replaced by the boxer rebellion so not only do they go to a boxer rebellion gig they talk about the boxer rebellion they buy the album at the merch store at in the gig at, of the Boxer Rebellion. They lo- he looks at the website of the Boxer Rebellion. He When he's trying to get back with Drew Barrymore, once they split up, he sends her tickets to a show of the Boxer Rebellion because <laughs> that's their special band. Uh-huh. And then the Boxer Rebellion do the closing show, which is where they re-meet at the end of the film without giving spoilers away. And... Then we closed the film with the closing credit song called If You Run.
0: Right. That's a hell of a sync,
1: Dude, <laughs> it was remarkable. Wow. And everything falls into place and the band get written into and perform in the film Going the Distance starring Justin Long, Charlie Day, Jason Sudeikis, Drew Barrymore and Christina Applegate. Wow.
0: Okay. That's that's a story.
1: Unfortunately, they changed the ending and made it super shitty. So the film totally flopped. <laughs> oh <my. laughs>
0: there had to be one dark cloud in there, didn't there?
1: But it was absolutely remarkable. Remarkable. Wow. You like dude, you know what? After a point like that it kind of doesn't matter what happens next Mm. because you've had such a fantastical, amazing experience that money just absolutely couldn't buy. And you can dine off of that story for the rest of time. And you know what? That's totally fine for life.
0: Sure. All right. One more film, a dog called money.
1: Seamus Murphy's film. Well, Seamus is a man. He's an amazing guy. Amazing guy. And I, I I I wish I knew him better actually than I do. But I know him obviously through uh, through Polly, through PJ Harvey. And she introduced me to Seamus um, because Seamus had worked very closely with her on the Let England Shake album. Um, and that was on the back of her going to an exhibition of his work and meeting him on the back of that exhibition. And then them deciding to work together on Let England Shake and Seamus um, directed all of the music videos for that album. And subsequently Seamus and Polly worked very closely together on the creation of the Hope Six Demolition Project album, which was born out of obviously all of uh, Polly's brilliance and um, journeys that she had taken with Seamus to um, Afghanistan, Kosovo. And Washington DC. Seamus had filmed uh, those journeys and filmed the recording of the Hope Six Demolition Project which in and of itself was a very fascinating thing because look before you talk about A Dog Called Money let's talk about some of the elements within A Dog Called Money Mm. and one element in particular which is the recording sessions that are filmed in that movie uh, at Somerset House. We decided to treat the creation of this album uh, like an art exhibition. And people buy tickets to this exhibition as though they were going to the Tate or the Hayward or anywhere else. And you buy a ticket to the exhibition and you go in and you experience art, and in doing so, it reminds you of the amount that goes into what you consume, and therefore how valuable it is, uh, coupled with that, the fact that Polly loves to record in interesting spaces, it was not enough to just go into a recording studio and just make a record. you know it was like the the space very much informs the process. So we started to explore um, this idea, which ultimately led to us creating, uh, and and in particular spearheaded by Flood, to build a recording studio in this wing at Somerset House, one-way glass with monitors on the outside, where if you're inside, you can't see what's happening outside, and people could buy a ticket and come and experience 45 minutes of viewing the creation of the album and leave. And we did four sessions a day, just like an art exhibition. It was an art exhibition. It was a living, breathing art exhibition. That was an experience that Seamus Murphy captured alongside all of the other wonderful uh, things that he captured, which ultimately became A Dog Called Money, the film. I, I really take my hat off to Seamus because, His challenge, of course, was to create a movie essentially without a prescribed narrative, wasn't a prescribed journey. So Seamus's challenge, of course, was to take all of that information and uh, I don't know how he did it. And he, he created a dog called Money, which is such an amazing, interesting experience to watch because it's not a film about PJ Harvey. It's not a film about the making of an album. It's, a, it's almost like, for me, it's like a film within a film because it's also about so much that's happening in our geopolitical landscape. And it tackles the history and the present and the future around this central artistic expression. And I become almost uh, like you're transported into spaces that you would never go to otherwise. Like his depictions of Kosovo's capturing of Afghanistan are not what you think you're going to see when you think about these places. They are completely humanized in a way that traditional media does not do. Seamus' gift is his ability to be able to do that and to take you there with him and you you kind of don't need to really question anything over and above that you know this is not supposed to be like an intellectual exercise it's just breathe in and breathe out and breathe in and breathe out I think that's just an amazing. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing.
0: There really seems like there's a thread here: contribution, creativity, and opportunity, and particularly the meaning that you kind of derive from the intersection of those things, and especially when it comes to connecting people together, is kind of what makes what you do, what you do, and it brings me back to what you were saying really early on about your sort of you originally wanted to do robots. You wanted to do engineering and you might get your chance because it it looks like AI is going to have an impact in this. Is that going to change this idea of contribution, creativity, opportunity, you know, human connection? Uh, You know, is is this becoming a data industry?
1: (laughs) Man, your questions, dude. Your questions.
0: So AI is a really interesting thing.
1: But okay, let's let's just uh simplify this. Let's just say a robot is able to create music. Not only is it able to create music, it's able to create perfect music based on learning. So this robot can absorb billions of bytes of information. And billions, if they even are billions, of compositions and millions of nodes of your personal interest points, your taste, right? And the robot says to you, hey, man, you know what? You're feeling a little bit like this. And I'm going to play you something to complement how you're feeling or to alleviate how you're feeling, or to compound how you're feeling. You don't have to tell me which one of those options you want because I already know which one you want based on your physiology, based on your measurements, based on your body temperature, based on your expressions, based on your perspiration, etc. I'm reading you better than you could ever have read yourself and I know exactly what you want. It's just like when you meet the person you love and they just know exactly what you want and they give it to you and you're like, God, I love you, man. It's the same shit, right? And we know that that happens because it happens. Of course it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us all the time, but you don't necessarily expect a, non-living biologically living entity to do that for you or to you yet but we will we will experience it and we will become used to it and we will demand it and actually we will demand it to such a degree that if you don't perfect it you will be out and someone else will be in so now this robot is making music for you and it's perfect every time every time when that robot isn't doing what alexa is currently doing which is drawing upon a pre-existing library of copyrights and art created by human hand but that robot instead is creating based on that knowledge pool its own perfect antidote to your poison the question then arises who owns the antidote and is it even replicable because it might not be we have to we have to assume that it might not be at all replicable because there's so many ones and zeros at play here that it's just not going to be repeated because it's that perfect for you like literally your fingerprint, all right? So does the person that invented the computer own it? Does the computer itself own it? Does the person that informed the computer own it? Uh, Where does ownership lie? And while our economy, our creative economy is built around value that is based around ownership, of copyright, this becomes a massive conundrum because it usurps the entire creative economy. So what do you do? Do you try and figure that out? Do you try and place value in this uh, accelerated micro economy of creation or do you choose to place value in something or somewhere else? And for me, I would place value in somewhere else. I wouldn't place value on the creation at this point because the creation is rapid, spontaneous, almost disposable. There are so many billions, trillions, quadrillions of permutations of this particular antidote that to try and own any one of them, makes you as insignificant as a star in the Milky Way. Let's not bury ourselves in that technicality. Mm. Let's accept that that is a star in a Milky Way. So let's now look at how we define the Milky Way.
0: Is what you're saying, given this condition of perfect creation of music that is absolutely customized and personalized, Does it now even need to be owned?
1: There's a difference between being owned and being monetized. Ownership doesn't necessarily come with a commercial aspect to it.
0: It sounds like what you're saying is given AI, we actually have to readdress the fundamentals of how this all works.
1: What you can do is own the environment in which an experience occurs. It's like saying if Guinness makes Guinness and people love to buy Guinness and drink Guinness, so Guinness makes all the money, then the bar in which that Guinness is served can make nothing because one could enjoy that Guinness outside of the bar. Why should the bar make any money if there's one bar and all it does, like the, the Toucan in Soho in London, and all it serves is Guinness, which you can literally walk down the street to any newsagent, to any dist- to any little al- uh, alcohol shop and buy Guinness. But you're not going into the Toucan because it's the only place you can get a
0: Guinness. You're going into the Toucan because it's the Toucan. Mm. And that's where you want to have a Guinness,
1: and that's where you yeah. want to have a Guinness. Yeah. So, I just think we have to separate ourselves in that sense. And the thing is, in music, that in and I, I can only speak about music because that's the the context that I live in. Right in this conversation, the environment in which the music is experienced for now has only been either through recorded music or you're experiencing them in a live venue and you're hearing the music live through a PA system. We haven't really gotten into the idea of commercializing the space within which one experiences music outside of those two realms. But when music becomes so fluid that it's changing in every iteration depending on which space you're in, then the space becomes king because the music that I listen to and experience is completely fluid and completely adaptable and bathes me all day long when I choose to engage.
0: And where are you going to be in this equation? Are you selling Guinness or are you the toucan? Oh, I'll be in the hot tub, bro. <laughs> that answered like a real music manager. <laughs>
1: I will 100% be in the hot tub in a panic room in my castle
0: (laughs) brilliant Sumit it's been an absolute pleasure and you've taken me on a real journey so thank you so much for that pleasure man cheers cool that's Sumit Bothra, and that's the MTF Podcast. He's not at Sumit Bothra on Twitter. That's someone else entirely. Try at ATC Management. I'm Dubber, and I'm at Dubber on Twitter, so that's nice and easy. MTF Labs is at MTF Labs and mtflabs.net on the web. In fact, right now I'm in Stockholm on my way to Portugal for MTF Labs Avero. Uh, for our first labs, since having to completely rethink how we manage in a COVID world, our theme is Another Green World. We're focusing on issues of renewal, clean energy, experimental sonic concepts addressing neuroplasticity, entrainment, echo acoustics and the aquatocene. We're bringing together 45 brilliant MTFers from 25 different countries to run a week-long innovation lab complete with all manner of social distancing, mask wearing, hand washing and in fact complete oceanic immersion, as well as remote collaboration in a hybrid event that also has satellites in Mexico City, Trondheim and Porto. We're going to be joined by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, with his Sonifying Antarctica project, Alex Murray-Leslie from Chicks on Speed, Ben Dawson from Melody VR, the proud new owners of Napster, vocal AI artist REAPS100, large-scale generative visual artist Synthestruct, aquatic biology sound artist Robertina Sebjanic, and many more brilliant artists and creators. It's an experiment, it's incredibly ambitious. And we're going to be connecting the dots live from Monday, 12th of October. It's not public, but we're going to send out a password link to members of the community. So if you're interested and you want to experience this event or even maybe take part in future MTF Labs events like this, go to mtflabs.net slash register to register. In the meantime, stay safe, wear a mask and listen to some great records. Talk soon. Cheers.
1: All right, edit this thing and make it sound good.